Chapter Twelve of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chores and Almanacs. Our farmyard would have been uninhabitable during this winter had it not been for the long ricks of straw which we piled up as a shield against the prairie winds. Our horse barn, roofed with hay and banked with chaff, formed the west wall of the cow pen and a long low shed gave shelter to the north. In this triangular space, in the lee of shed and straw rick, the cattle passed a dolorous winter. Mostly they burrowed in the chaff, or stood about humped and shivering. Only on sunny days did their arching backs subside. Naturally, each animal grew a thick coat of long hair, and succeeded in coming through to grass again. But the cows of some of our neighbors were less fortunate some of them got so weak that they had to be tailed up as it was called this meant that they were dying of hunger and the sight of them crawling about filled me with indignant wrath i could not understand how a man otherwise kind could let his stock suffer for lack of hay when wild grass was plentiful one of my duties and one i dreaded was pumping water for our herd this was no light job especially on a stinging windy morning, for the cows, having only dry fodder, required an enormous amount of liquid, and as they could only drink while the water was fresh from the well, someone must work the handle till the last calf had absorbed his fill, and this had to be done when the thermometer was thirty below, just the same as at any other time. And this brings up an almost forgotten phase of bovine psychology, the order in which the cows drank, as well as that in which they entered the stable, was carefully determined and rigidly observed. There was always one old dowager who took precedence. All the others gave way before her. Then came the second in rank, who feared the leader, but insisted on ruling all the others, and so on down to the heifer. This order, once established, was seldom broken, at least by the females of the herd the males were more unstable, even when the leader grew old and almost helpless. We took advantage of this loyalty when putting them into the barn. The stall furthest from the door belonged to Old Spot, the second to Daisy, and so on. Hence all I had to do was open the door and let them in, for if any rash young thing got out of her proper place she was set right very quickly by her superiors some farms had ponds or streams to which their flocks were driven for water but this to me was a melancholy winter function and sometimes as i joined bert or cyrus in driving the poor humped and shivering beasts down over the snowy plain to a hole chopped in the ice and watched them lay their aching teeth to the frigid draught trying a dozen times to temper their mouths to the chill i suffered with them as they streamed along homeward heavy with their sloshing load, they seemed the personification of a desolate and abused race. Winter mornings were a time of trial for us all. It required stern military command to get us out of bed before daylight, in a chamber warmed only by the stovepipe, to draw on icy socks and frosty boots, and go to the milking of cows and the currying of horses. Other boys did not rise by candlelight, but I did not because I was eager to make a record, but for the very good reason that my commander believed in early rising. I groaned and whined, but I rose. 
and always I found mother in the kitchen before me, putting the kettle on. It ought not to surprise the reader when I say that my morning toilet was hasty, something less than a lick and a promise. I couldn't, or didn't, stop to wash my face or comb my hair. Such refinement seem useless in an attic bedchamber at five in the morning of a December day. I put them off till breakfast time. Getting up at five a.m. even in June was a hardship. In winter it was a punishment. Our discomforts had their compensations. As we came back to the house at six, the kitchen was always cheery with the smell of browning flapjacks, sizzling sausages, and steaming coffee, and mother had plenty of hot water on the stove so that in half a jiffy, with shining faces and sleek hair, we sat down to a noble feast. By this time also the eastern sky was gorgeous with light, and two misty sundogs dimly loomed, watching at the gate of the new day. Now that I think of it, father was the one who took the brunt of our reveille. He always built the fire in the kitchen stove before calling the family. Mother, silent, sleepy, came second. Sometimes she was just combing her hair as I passed through the kitchen. At other times she would be at the biscuit dough or stirring the pancake batter, but she was always there. What did you gain by this disagreeable habit of early rising? This is a question I have often asked myself since. Was it only a useless obsession on the part of my pioneer dad? Why couldn't we have slept till six or even seven? Why rise before the sun? I cannot answer this. I only know such was our habit, summer and winter, and that most of our neighbors conformed to the same rigorous tradition. None of us got rich, and as I look back on the situation, I cannot recall that those sluggards, who rose an hour or two later, were any poorer than we. I am inclined to think it was all a convention on the border, a custom which might very well have been broken by us all. My mother would have found these winter days very long, had it not been for baby Jessie, for father was busily hauling wood from the Cedar River some six or seven miles away, and the almost incessant, mournful piping of the wind in the chimney was dispiriting. Occasionally Mrs. Button, Mrs. Gammons, or some of the other neighbors would drop in for a visit, but generally mother and Jessie were alone till Harriet and Frank and I came home from school at half-past four. Our evenings were more cheerful. My sister Hattie was able to play a few simple tunes on the melodeon, and Cyrus and Ava, or Mary Abby and John, occasionally came in to sing. In this my mother often took part. In church her clear soprano rose above all the others, like the voice of some serene great bird. Of this gift my father often expressed his open admiration. There was very little dancing during our second winter, but Fred Jewett started a singing school, which brought the young folks together once a week. We boys amused ourselves with dare ghoul and dog and deer. Cold had little terror for us, provided the air was still. Often we played high spy around the barn, with the thermometer twenty below zero, and not infrequently we took long walks to visit Burton and other of our boyfriends, or to borrow something to read. I was always on the trail of a book. Harriet joined me in my search for stories, and nothing in the neighborhood homes escaped us. Anything in print received our most respectful consideration. Jane Porter's Scottish Chiefs 
brought to us both anguish and delight. Tempest and Sunshine was another discovery. I cannot tell to whom I was indebted for Ivanhoe, but I read and reread it with the most intense pleasure. At the same time, or near it, I borrowed a huge bundle of the New York Saturday Night and the New York Ledger, and from them I derived an almost equal enjoyment. Old Sleuth and Buckskin Bill were as admirable in their way as Cedric the Saxon. At this time, Godey's Ladies' Book and Peterson's Magazine were the only high-class periodicals known to us. The Toledo Blade and the New York Tribune were still my father's political advisers, and Horace Greeley and Petroleum V. Naseby were equally corporeal in my mind. Almanacs figured largely in my reading at this time, and were a source of frequent quotation by my father. They were nothing but small, badly printed, patent medicine pamphlets, each with a loop of string at the corner, so that they might be hung on a nail behind the stove, and of a crude green or yellow or blue. Each of them made much of a calm-featured man, who seemed unaware of the fact that his internal organs were open to the light of day. Lines radiated from his middle to the signs of the zodiac. I never knew what all this meant, but it gave me a sense of something esoteric and remote. Just what Aries and Pisces had to do with healing or the weather is still a mystery. These advertising bulletins could be seen in heaps on the counter at the drug store, especially in the spring months when Healy's bitters and Allen's cherry pectoral were most needed to purify the blood. They were given out freely, but the price of the marvelous mixtures they celebrated was always one dollar a bottle, and many a broad coin went for a bitter which should have gone to buy a new dress for an overlooked wife. These little books contained also concise aphorisms and weighty words of advice like after dinner rest a while after supper run a mile and be vigilant be truthful and your life will never be ruthful take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves which needed a little translating to us probably came down a long line of english copy books no doubt they were all stolen from poor richard Incidentally, they called attention to the aches and pains of humankind, and each page presented the face, signature, and address of some far-off person who had been miraculously relieved by the particular balsam or bitter which that pamphlet presented. Hollow-cheeked folk were shown before taking, and the same individuals plump and hearty after taking, followed by very realistic accounts of the diseases from which they had been relieved gave encouragement to others, suffering from the same complaints. Generally, the almanac which presented the claims of a pectoral also had a salve that was sovereign for burns, and some of them took humanely into account the ills of farm animals, and presented a cure for bots or a liniment for spavins. I spent a great deal of time with these publications, and to them a large part of my education is due. It is impossible that printed matter of any kind should possess for any child of today the enchantment which came to me from a grimy, half-dismembered copy of Scott or Cooper. The life of P. T. Barnum, Franklin's autobiography, we owned, and they were also wellsprings of joy to me. Sometimes I hold with the Lacedaemonians that hunger is the best sauce for the mind as well as for the palate. Certainly we made the most of all that came our way. 
Naturally the schoolhouse continued to be the center of our interest by day, and the scene of our occasional neighborhood recreation by night. In its small way it was our forum as well as our academy, and my memories of it are mostly pleasant. Early one bright winter day, Charles Babcock and Albert Button, two of our big boys, suddenly appeared at the schoolhouse door with their best teams hitched to great bobsleds, and amid much shouting and laughter, the entire school, including the teacher, piled in on the straw which softened the bottom of the box, and away we raced, with jangling bells, along the bright winter roads with intent to surprise the burr-oak teacher and his flock. I particularly enjoyed this expedition, for the burr-oak school was larger than ours, and stood on the edge of a forest and was protected by noble trees. A deep ravine near it furnished a mild form of coasting. The schoolroom had fine new desks with iron legs, and the teacher's desk occupied a deep recess at the front. Altogether it possessed something of the dignity of a church. To go there was almost like going to town, for at the corners where the three roads met, four or five houses stood, and in one of these was a post office. That day is memorable to me for the reason that I first saw Betty and Hattie and Agnes, the prettiest girls in the township. Hattie and Betty were both fair-haired and blue-eyed, but Agnes was dark with great velvety black eyes. Neither of them was over sixteen, but they had all taken on the airs of young ladies and looked with amused contempt on lads my age. Nevertheless, I had the right to admire them in secret, for they added the final touch of poetry to this visit to the Grove schoolhouse. Often thereafter, on a clear night, when the thermometer stood twenty below zero, Burton and I would trot away toward the Grove to join in some meeting or to coast with the boys on the banks of the creek. I feel again the iron clutch of my frozen boots. The tippet around my neck is solid ice before my lips. My ears sting. Low-hung, blazing stars light the sky, and over the diamond-dusted snow-crust the moonbeams splinter. Though sensing the glory of such nights as these, I was careful about referring to it. Restraint in such matters was the rule. If you said, it is a fine day, or the night is as clear as a bell, you had gone quite as far as the proprieties permitted. Love was also a forbidden word. You might say, I love pie, but to say, I love Betty, was mawkish, if not actually improper. Caresses, or terms of endearment, even between parents and their children, were very seldom used. People who said, Daddy dear, or Jim dear, were under suspicion. They fight like cats and dogs when no one else is around, was the universal comment on a family whose members were very free of their terms of affection. We were a Spartan lot. We did not believe in letting our wives and children know that they were an important part of our contentment. Social changes were in progress. We held no more quilting-bees or barn-raisings. Women visited less than in Wisconsin. The work on the new farms was never-ending, and all teams were in constant use during weekdays. The young people got together on one excuse or another, but their elders met only at public meetings. Singing, even among the young people, was almost entirely confined to hymn-tunes. The new moody and sankey songbook was in every home. Tell me the old, old story did not refer to courtship but to salvation. 
and hold the fort, for I am coming, was no longer a signal from Sherman, but a message from Jesus. We often spent a joyous evening singing, O oh, bear me away on your snowy wings, although we had no real desire to be taken to our immortal home. Father no longer asked for Minnie Mintern and Nellie Wildwood, but his love for Smith's grand march persisted, and my sister Harriet was often called upon to play it for him while he explained its meaning. The war was passing into the mellow reminiscent haze of memory, and he loved the splendid pictures which this descriptive piece of martial music recalled to mind. So far as we knew then, his pursuit of the sunset was at an end. End of chapter 12